I hope you brought your Bible with you, and I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 10, and we're going to read through chapter 10 and most of chapter 11 this morning, but as we've done uh, in the past, at least the last few weeks or so, we'll break this up, being it's a larger reading, and I've done something else as well. The copy that I'm going to read to you this morning, I have summarized a number of these names. This chapter 10 has dozens of very difficult to pronounce names. And I learned a long time ago that uh, if you don't understand what it means, it's one of two things that's going to happen. Either you're going to just think of something else or you're going to laugh while someone else tries to pronounce what no one can pronounce because these men have been gone for a long time and they're not here to tell us how to do it. So when we come to long list of names, uh, I'll just mention the number of the names that are read and the relationship to the grandfather or father or great-grandfather that they came from. And I'll mention verse numbers so you can keep track if you would like to follow along. We'll read through chapter 10, then we'll study for a while and we'll pick up in chapter 11 here in a few moments. But this is Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons who were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, that would be seven sons and seven grandsons. Verse 5, from these coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, verse 6, four sons, four grandsons, and two great-grandsons. Verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, along with three other cities. Verse 11, from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, along with three other cities. Verse 13, Egypt fathered seven sons, they could actually be cities, from whom the Philistines came. Verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction to Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adama, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. To Shem, also the father of all children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, here we go, five sons, five grandsons, one great-grandson, one great-great-grandson, two great-great-great-grandsons, and 13 great-great-great-grandsons. Their territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. That's chapter 10. And let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you 
for all the ways in which you've blessed us. We especially thank you for your word. Even lists of names that are difficult to pronounce, but containing information that help us understand other portions of your word. Lord, would you give to us uh, an attention span long enough to listen and to learn, to put these things together so that you might make us better children, that we might look less like ourselves and more like you. And Lord, that we might be prepared for one day when a question is asked that might point someone to the, the big question of life, more important than any other, and that would be to understand you and what you've done for them. Lord, thank you again for our time together, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So another genealogy. You didn't know Genesis was so full of genealogies, did you? Unless you are accustomed to reading through your Bibles in a year, we come up against this at least once a year. Uh, What can we say about this genealogy? Because we've covered several so far, and though those are similar to this in certain ways, uh, this one is different. And several things can be said about it, but our purpose here this morning is, is not necessarily to spend all our time in chapter 10, but to save enough time to give an adequate uh, once-over to the 11th chapter. So uh, this is going to be brief, at least what we say about chapter 10, and then we'll find us a good stopping spot for 2023, uh, this side of our Christmas messages, and first of the year we'll start in chapter 12 with Abraham. So ancient Near Eastern writings had all sorts of genealogies. The Bible's not the only place we find ancient genealogies. And though some of those are like this one, this genealogy of all the genealogies in Scripture is the outlier of basically all the others that we find. Most of the ancient genealogical records are only for kings and important people. This is just about everybody. You've got no names, commoners, uh, city builders. You've even got great hunters of the earth mixed in here. This, this has got something for everyone. And there are persons listed here, but there are also peoples and tribes and nations listed here. Uh, the names you see ending in the I am, uh, that's the way in Hebrew that you would make something plural. So that's probably not a name. I don't know of too many people that ever named their child a name in the plural, as if it was more than one kid. That would be weird. I don't think they did that then. So it's probably signifying some type of tribe or or clan. Uh, The words ending in ites are even bigger groups of people. Uh, The Amorites, the Canaanites, all those ites that we remember from Sunday school, the enemies of God's people, as it were. We also see places listed among the names as the locations of where these tribes, clans, or nations settled. And then, it seems, uh, the purpose of this genealogy is not so much to trace the line or the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's what the other ones were doing. The closer we are to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, those genealogies seem to trace off uh, what was pronounced by God in the form of a curse talking to the snake, and curse the ground too. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, her seed and your seed. So then when you see their sons, you've got one son kills the other, Cain kills Abel. Well, then you can kind of mark off Cain's line as 
the seed of the serpent. And then you've got Seth, the third child of Adam and Eve, being the line where we would see sometime in the future, uh, even tracing through Noah where they survived the flood and no one else did. You've got to have a line where which the son of God, the seed of the woman, will wage war against the snake and the serpent. Well, we covered that and we watched that plan out in the genealogies, but this is different. This is for the purpose to account for the way in which the people on earth spread out to fill the earth after the flood. Now, you'll need one piece of information to make sense of what we just read and what we're going to read, and that is that chronologically speaking, the contents of chapter 10 that we just read, most of, and the contents of chapter 11 are reversed. Chapter 11 tells us about the Tower of Babel where everyone's scattered. And then chapter 11 just told us where they scattered to. But it's going to explain to us how that happened when we read in 11 that it looked like it wasn't going to until God intervened. So why did the peoples of the earth scatter as they did? These two chapters are going to answer that question. Before we move on, there's a few little things worth noting in chapter 10. We'll hit them and then we'll move to chapter 11. Um, all of this is structured around the three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. First, we see Japheth in the account. Uh, these are the people that spread to the north and to the west. That would be Asia and Europe. The least is said about these people because they were the greater distance away from the Hebrew people. More distance, less of a worry, less is said. Then we get to the sons of Ham who settled in Egypt, Mesopotamia, parts of Arabia, and North Africa. These would be Israel's nearest neighbors. These would be the people that caused them problems for centuries. These are all the ites that you remember when you get to the book of Joshua and Judges and First um, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Uh, this section here, talking about Ham and those descendants, is where you see the one piece of specificity in the whole record and it has to do with that fellow named Nimrod. I almost wanted to look up to see if anybody smiled when I said the word Nimrod. That it's in the Bible, that's where we get the word Nimrod. He's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Most people, I don't know anybody. Anybody know anyone who named their kid Nimrod, not as a nickname? Or a brother calling his other brother a Nimrod? And if you wonder where we get this mighty hunter before the Lord and then what we think of when we hear the word Nimrod, think Bugs Bunny in the 40s for calling Elmer Fudd a Nimrod. That's basically where we trace it back to. And that was a joke because Elmer Fudd is not a mighty hunter. It's a joke. So from then on, you got all the way from, what is this, 4,000 years ago, and then we get to 1940, Nimrod changes from mighty hunter to moron, thanks to Bugs Bunny. But I thought maybe that's worth saying, just so you know, okay, I get it now. Makes sense. Now, again, Japheth was first. They're far off. Ham is second. They're close by. And then we see the line of Shem, the Shemites, or uh, as we would know them, Semites. These are the Jews, eventually. Uh, Moses saves the chosen line for last. That's typical of genealogies. And the descendants of Shem spread out to northern Mesopotamia, Syria, and parts of Arabia. And if you go to the book after Revelation, which is called Maps in your Bible, 
you can see where all that shakes out. Now, this will be important later. Many of these people groups come up again. But right now, as far as this morning's study, we're going to say that the point of chapter 10 is to make the point that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, real names of real people who would be the fathers of the Jewish race, is not a localized God dreamt up by a small clan from Ur of the Chaldees, where Abram came from, who was later called Abraham. This God has been there all along from Genesis 1-1, where he created everything out of nothing. And he'll be there all the way to Revelation 22:21, from eternity past, eternity future. God covers it all. It's not just one God among them all. It's the one God, true God, King of kings, Lord of lords. All right, let's start reading in chapter 11 now. And we'll read through most of this, uh, at least down to verse 9 for the moment. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So this is the fourth main event of the book of Genesis. If you remember at the beginning we said there's a simple way to keep your place wherever you are in the book. There's four major events in the first part, the first 11 chapters. There was the creation, the fall, the flood, and now Babel. And then the rest of the book's given over to four important people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We'll start with that at the beginning of the year. And this is not at all the last we'll ever hear of, of Babel. It will be traced all the way to the book of Revelation. Not necessarily a physical city at that point, but a frame of mind, the way in which people act and think. So... We'll see it. It'll come up again and again and again. And like the story of the flood in chapter 6, this is a story of judgment. Chapter 6, the flood, that was a judgment on humanity's wickedness. The alt-control delete of the whole world as it was except for eight people. Well, this is a story of judgment, but it's not the alt-control delete anymore. Uh, It's a confusion of languages. But the judgment is because of a disobedience against God, and we'll see what that means. And likes the story of the fall in chapter 3, where Adam and Eve decided, okay, God has given us his definition of what is good and what is evil. Everything's good except for that tree. Don't eat of it. That would be evil. Well, after talking to the snake, they decide, well, we should be able to decide that for ourselves. If we want to say what he said is evil is good... 
or what he said is good, we want to say is evil, then we ought to be able to do that. We described that sinful attitude as autonomy. To say to the one that created you, I don't need you anymore. Well, this is the same thing with the Tower of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves. We'll build a tower to heaven where we can rule that as well. So we'll split this into two parts. There's two acts seen in what we just read, the people's provocation and then God's response. And we'll take them one at a time. The people's provocation. How did they provoke the Lord to come down and to confuse their languages? Well, the, the, the curtain raises on the first act, and it's that of a communal building project. Now, is there anything wrong with building something? Is there anything wrong with cooperating with, with other groups of people or consolidating your interests or gathering into a city with all the benefits that come along with it, like security or division of labor or social order or culture and arts and any of that other stuff? No. In and of itself, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of that. That can't be the point here. Um, Christopher Watkin, I've, I've quoted him before in this series. He says, there's several clues in this passage that the people maintain their intention is not primarily to establish a stable society. There's more going on here. First, and we'll just run through, uh, there's five of these. Genesis one twenty eight. the first humans were told to fill the earth. Remember that? First command was be fruitful and multiply. Have a bunch of kids and then spread out after you've done so and as you're doing so. That's what God told Adam and Eve, the first humans in Genesis 1. This was repeated to Noah and his family in chapter 9 after the flood. Be fruitful and spread out. But in chapter 11, mankind wants to build a city so they are not scattered over the face of the whole earth. Remember that part? Let's just do this lest we be scattered. This is in direct violation to what God had commanded, not once but twice. Second, the language of verse 4 captures the Bible's desire, or the people's desire, rather, for an autonomous identity. Listen to this language. So that we can make a name for ourselves. And I think that might be the critical uh, phrase of the whole passage. We'll come back to it again and again. In biblical thinking, to name something is to have authority over it. When God began to create over those six days, each thing that he created, he named it. We still call it by those names. It demonstrates his authority over it as having made it. When he gave Adam the authority to name all the animals, same thing. He had dominion over the animals. Um, Adam naming, it's all the same. But to seek to make a name for oneself seems to run counter to that. Uh, and here in this context seems to be uh, to assert one's self-made autonomous independence. In this case, to ignore the one who gave us our life, our breath, everything, including our name. Number three, the way that these people want to make a name for themselves is by building a tower that reaches to the heavens. Isn't that what groups of people do? Uh, they build something spectacular. So everybody sees it and notices them. It's one way to be recognized. It's one way to be feared. Uh, this isn't strange in our study of humanity over the ages. 
But the way that they go about doing this, reaching to the heavens. Two interpretations as to the motive behind building a tower that reaches to the heavens. One, uh, it could be that they had designed this to make it convenient for the God to come down to its temple, receiving worship and blessing his people. And the superstitious type of uh, worship, gods, idols, and so forth in that period, uh, you had to sacrifice quite a bit to get on those gods' good side and receive your blessing. What if you, as a people group, have a tower that reaches to the heavens, everybody else sees it, and you can basically say whatever you want to say that God said to you. You're closest to him, right? You have the tower that reaches to the heavens. This is absolute, total religious control if that's what they're wanting to get from it. Uh, The other idea could be it was to be a beachhead of sorts to launch an assault on God's throne room. Instead of just negotiating him with, we'll we'll take him over. Maybe that was what they thought. Maybe that's a bit of a stretch. But either way, the purpose remains to make a name for themselves. And again, either way, this is contrast to God's promise to what we'll learn beginning of next year with Abraham in chapter 12, where he says to him what? I will make your name great. Who's making his name great? God's making his name great. Not Abraham making his own name great. And then uh, fourth, uh, in narrative terms, if we're telling a story here, uh, rather than playing a role in God's story, which would be filling the earth and subduing it, that's what he told them to do, right? No, they want God to play a supporting role in their story. Now, you might, you're sitting in church pews. We're listening to the Bible here. You might think, the audacity of such things. But how often, if someone were to just transcribe our prayers and then print them out for, say, a panel of theological experts to say, okay, what does this man want? To serve the Lord Uh, carry his message out as the Great Commission and to live a faithful life? Or does he want this galactic maid to take care of every little last request of whatever it requires to make his life happy, comfortable, rich, whatever? Does God play a supporting role in our own story? Or do we, in obedience to his command as his creation, fulfill his Story. It's one or it's the other. And I think we've already got a pretty decent picture as to what the Tower of Babel is all about. Fifth, seems to be an amazing resemblance to Genesis 3, where mankind seems to be after the same goal, and that is to make himself equal with God and therefore gain his own autonomy. Man wants to ascend to heaven instead of filling the earth, making a name for himself instead of receiving his name from his maker. So let's go to the second act. The perspective was the peoples of the earth in the first act. The perspective is God's here in the second act. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, I detect some heavy irony here. Uh, God doesn't need to come down to inspect the Tower of Babel. He can see it from where he is. He's all-knowing. So this is the language of... uh, emphasis and drama uh, to help us understand how this is unfolding. But um, 
He pronounces his judgment. Look there in verse 6 again. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Verse 7, Let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, what would that do to the world? Well, it was done to the world. I don't know that until I started reading passages like this, I ever thought anything strange that people speak different languages, especially those that live far away from each other. I remember what it was like to try to learn French. Don't ask me to remember any of that. I didn't enjoy it, so what did I do with it after I learned it? I let it rot with all the other stuff that's crammed into your brain when you're in school that you don't like, right? Well, it sounds weird anyway. doesn't make sense to me. Don't you think that because of language, and how would you describe something you really like or something that is really important? If you're behind a translation wall, how do they say that? Lost in translation? So the whole world is limited by its ability to cooperate with each other along language and subsequently cultural lines, correct? What if that had never happened? What if we all spoke the same language? Would World War II have shaken out the way it did when the whole world seems to be at war? Could we have sat at tables maybe? And because we can communicate, maybe we could see things from each other's perspective and decide this isn't worth it. Maybe. Or if we really decided we wanted to do something as evil as some of the things we saw in World War II, could we not have accomplished that much quicker? And would we even be here today if we'd succeeded? These are just questions meant to make you think rather than questions that we could ever answer. They'd be impossible to answer, right? But this is what God did. He confounded their languages. God takes sin seriously, and this tower is the headquarters of their sin of autonomy. Some have interpreted this as God's spiteful move to keep people dumb and divided. But I think it's, in fact, merciful as it limits the extent to which humanity can harden themselves against their Creator. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. That's verse 8. They left off building the city. Just for fun, I, I googled uh, incomplete major building projects. That's fascinating. There's a lot of expensive materials sitting halfway finished all over the earth. And each of them stand as an embarrassment to the people who thought they could complete them. Um, Therefore, its name was called Babel, which means confusion, because there the Lord confused the languages of the earth. From there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. All right, um, let's take the direction we did at the last point. Is it morally okay to thwart an evil empire bent on world uh, domination? almost said denomination. Um, Bonhoeffer thought so. Do you remember him? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, they made a movie of Tom Cruise in it having to do with the, uh, the attempt on Hitler's life that Bonhoeffer was involved in. It didn't work, and when captured, uh, they hung that man about two weeks before the Allies invaded Berlin and could have saved most of these prisoners, if not all of them. Uh, he thought it was worth it. 
evidently God considers it worth the time. Uh, we can get absolutely buried in uh, just war and how all that works. But I do believe there's grace here. God has not destroyed them like he did during the flood. He just spreads them out. They're forced to. But as he'd originally commanded them to do for themselves. So here is a case in Scripture where God does for mankind what they cannot do for themselves. Cannot or will not. So I think we've uh, covered this sufficient enough to understand at least the contents of these two chapters. So we can begin to wrap this up. Um, an attempt to take the wasness of millennia ago and make it useful in the isness of where we're sitting right now. The spirit of Babel continues in our own day as it continues through the scriptures even into the book of Revelation which most of its content is still future to us right here and now. So Babel's still around. Uh, the, the, the idea or the attitude of it. What we see in contemporary society is the understanding that it's not at all a God or a creator's right to define the meaning of life. That's not the way our culture operates. Now, if we're brought up in church, we believe our Bibles, we believe we're made in God's image, and He has the authority to define the meaning of life. But our culture at large doesn't see that at all. Instead of that, uh, they would see that as the individual's burden themselves. So success in life would be seen as the individual's responsibility alone. If someone is not successful, it's their fault because the only thing stopping anyone from following their dreams is a lack of their own desire. Now, some would say, it's ah, a little too, too free to me. I think there's much more deterministic limits on some people, where they're born, to whom they're born, what they have access to, so on and so forth. But I think it's quite accurate that deep down, at least in America, if you see somebody who hasn't made much of their lives, you would probably lay or assign the blame to that to them, at least if they're healthy and they're able. They can work like anyone else if they want to. Sky's the limit. Go get what you want. We write songs about this type of stuff. Looking out for number one, and, uh, you know, need my piece of the pie, and on and on and on and on. I think it's just bred in our thinking. The idea that success would be attributed to God's blessing or a meaningful, happy, successful life to be the blessing of God, I think would be foreign to modern thought. You see someone successful and they just assume, oh, God must have blessed this man. No, there's probably books written about how he grabbed the, the bull by the horns or the world by the tail or whatever else. Uh, again, Christopher Watkin uh, speaking toward this idea, we must all make a name for ourselves and failure to reach the pinnacle of society is morally culpable. In a world that catechizes us into the dream that you can be anything you want to be, Citizens are faced with the twin responsibility of first choosing what they want to be and then becoming what they have chosen on pain of namelessness. You want to be somebody, then go get it. If you don't, you're a nobody. And it's okay to be a nobody. 
It's just nobody pays any attention to nobodies. Not in this type of a culture. And uh, to make matters worse, it's not sufficient to be successful only in your own eyes. Now, we might applaud that, that someone who lives a simplistic life, they've got what they want and they're happy, okay? Um, Everybody would say, good for you. But they don't follow you around with cameras to make reality shows about simple people doing simple things. It's the extravagance. It's the spectacle. That's what gets the notice. You won't have a name that anyone recognizes doing something like that. We live in a world in which God's true estimation of our worth has been replaced by a final verdict handed down by the court of public opinion mediated through social broadcast and print media. They'll tell you what's important and they'll give you the target to aim for. But here's kind of you know, the conclusion to all this. The tragedy of this type of thinking, which I think is right in line with the thinking of the Tower of Babel, which started in the Garden of Eden, and will trace its line all the way through the Bible, even through the world we live in today. This type of thinking turns its back on the name God gives, which is the only name given in love, perfect love, a name given by grace, grace that you and I do not deserve, from a compassionate and benevolent attitude, and not at all in any shape, fashion, or form like the cold, hard, fickle, judgmental attitude of public opinion that's far more concerned with its own name than anyone else's. Once the world has stamped, recognized, or validated your success, does that mean they love you? Does that just put you in a place where you can be marketed to make someone else more money? At the end, when, when, when we've come to the end of our life and it's been spent, of what worth is, is that over against a name that God gives us himself with an eternity that comes along with it? Is this what we want? So seeking to make a name for ourselves condemns us to a punishing regime of ever inadequate performance, ever more focused and filtered self-presentation, and ever provisional, ever changeable verdict of social systems. In other words, fallen humanity has only ever been interested in spectacle since the fall. God, on the other hand, since humanity's fall, has only ever been interested in its Redemption down to the individual, you and I. It's Christmas time, right? And we said last week we'd, we'd have the tree by the time you got back and the wreaths on the windows, uh, these bells that add a different sound to our music. I have to confess, I did think of that Christmas commercial with the little Hershey kiss um, when I heard those. Made me want one. We should, we should pass those out next week, perhaps. Don't bring one if you can't bring one for the whole class, right? But Christmas time, this, this is the, the month out of the year or so uh, that we celebrate these themes of Christ having come into this world to save us from our sins. And where last week we concluded the serv- service with joy to the world, 
which uh, is more of a millennial hymn. This is Christ's second coming that it's referring to, where sin is vanquished and all that's left is happily ever after. This week, we're going to close the service with a song about that first advent. And I think you ask, what's your favorite Christmas hymn? Silent Night is Mine. And I can remember as a boy sitting uh, on the hearth near the wood stove in the living room uh, back in Virginia when I was younger than most of our kids now, listening to World War II veterans. The seniors come over to the house once Christmas and listening to a German prisoner of war talk about what it was like Christmas Eve, late. They didn't have clocks or watches. And somebody starts singing Silent Night. And everybody starts singing. Even some of the guards. Something about that song just seems to grab a hold of everything that Christmas is, is all about. Was well, talking about uh, the birth of a boy and not in a, in a palace, uh, not by any means extravagant. And at the same time, I think we can over-dramatize uh, the story and make it worse than the scriptures describe it to be, where it was common but I don't think it was in squalor. I don't think that the woman favored among all women that God chose to be the mother of Jesus would leave the manger nasty. She's going to clean it as best she can, as any mother would take care of their child. So there may have been hundreds of thousands of boys born in that way, but I think what is being said is it was just normal. There's nothing special about any of this. It's a silent night. There's angels over across the way having a party that some shepherds will see. But for years and years and years, it's going to be until this man grows up. And then for the space of three years, he's going to heal the sick, raise the dead, and head on attack the status quo of these people called the Jews, God's chosen people they're supposed to be. How did Paul describe being part of that elite in Judaism, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, I was among the best. Sounds like he'd made a name for himself, which is exactly what they did. How many times did Jesus say, you don't stand on the street corner and pray so loud everybody can hear you? You don't fast so your face looks horrible and then not wash it so everybody sees how spiritual you really are? And just from one end to the other tells them that their whole thing is a sham. It's lifeless. They've been building names for themselves, right? So he keeps on and he keeps on until they decide this man's dangerous. We can't let him do this anymore. He's going to absolutely dismantle what we've got. And the poor of all the people will tear this place to pieces. So they get in uh, to cahoots with the Romans and they talk Pilate into crucifying him. They do. And as he dies, as we talked about last week, a lot of miracles took place. It was dark for three hours. There was an earthquake. Lightning struck. But the veil of the temple rent from the top to the bottom. That veil kept the holy place separate from the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that was just to say, listen, God's holy. You're all sinners. Stay out on pain of death. 
But that thing ripped from the top to the bottom miraculously as if to say, I've been telling you for millennia, stay away. I'm holy and you're not. But it's finished. The price has been paid. Sin's been put on the shoulders of the Son of God. He's died, breaking its curse for anyone who will trust him by faith. Now, once that's been done, having been obedient to what his father asked him to do, obedient to death, who killed Jesus Christ, the Son of God? God did, instead of killing you and I. That's the theological ramifications of the Christmas and Easter story. But what's the passage and how does it go? Having humbled himself, having become a taken on the form of a servant. And then the therefore. The therefore is the way to change. Okay, that's done, so this now happens. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Things in heaven things in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess, what? That Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who gets the name above all names? The man who decided instead of destroying the world again, I'll just destroy my son instead. And then I'll make him judge of the world. Why? Because he knows what death tastes like. And he won't give it to anyone knowing how horrible it is. Unless, of course, they've chosen it for themselves. That's significant, is it? A name for oneself or the name that's been given? You must choose. Before we sing this song, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for hymns and carols like Silent Night. Thank you for this passage of scripture that is confusing to us. It's so long ago and so far away. The way people interact just seems so different. But then if we look to the themes and we look into the heart, we know it's really all the same. Lord, would you save us from the madness of trying to make a name for ourselves as if it could be better than the name that you gave us Not the name that our parents gave us when we were born, but the name that you gave us when we were created. That we would find our significance in you. Understanding that if you indeed are our creator, you would know more about us than we know about ourselves. Lord, would you use these things if for nothing else than to make us think and to think toward your direction, to weigh these things, to see if they line up to see if this is indeed true. Lord, we ask that you bless our, our, our time this month, the month where we feel as though we would never be able to go all the places we're invited to or keep all the appointments or to keep up everyone's expectations. But Lord, would we spend this time contemplating your gift to this earth that began one silent night and what that could mean Again, if it were true. Lord, we thank you that these things are true. We thank you for Christmas, our time together today. And we ask these things in the name above all names, the name of Jesus.
Amen.